Well, hello and welcome to this, the very first episode of the ME Show. My name's Gary Burgess. I'm a journalist and broadcaster. I was diagnosed with ME last year and I'm really excited we finally have this podcast series. Together with the ME Association, I hope the series will shine a light on different aspects of ME. By speaking to those with it, of course to those campaigning to raise awareness, and to the medics and researchers working to understand more about what ME is and how it's treated. If you're listening to this in iTunes, please subscribe, please rate and review, because that really helps boost our rankings, and that means more people will find this show. And please also share us across all your social media feeds and anywhere else for that matter. Let's raise awareness of this show as well and let's hopefully make it a success. So what's on the show today? Well, I speak to Jennifer Breyer, who rose to prominence with her incredible documentary, Unrest, which charts her own ME experience. We talk about the highs and lows of ME. I was really afraid that I was going to end up taking my own life. And I was afraid of that because I did not believe I had the stamina to um, to deal with the grief of the loss and then the daily pain. And we talk about Jennifer's strength and determination to keep up her advocacy and campaigning. Also today, Robert Saunders tells me about his reworking of the Bob Dylan classic Blowing in the Wind. He's created new lyrics and the whole thing is performed by people with ME. It just occurred to me how relevant the lyrics were to me in my situation and the struggles faced by people with ME around the world. Rob's been either bedbound or housebound for most of the past 26 years. Now age 45, he lives with and is cared for by his parents. And I think he's created something very, very special. And you can hear more of that later in the show. Now, this podcast comes at the very start of ME Awareness Week, which culminates in a series of Millions Missing Action Days this coming Saturday. I'd love to tell you all the things that are happening for ME Awareness Week, organised by the ME Association. There's a focus on employment and education this year. There's also the return of the Go Blue for ME event, which has been very popular in the past. And it's interesting to see, and it's wonderful to see, national buildings and monuments, including Blackpool Tower, are going blue as part of ME Awareness Week. As I say, there's far too much for me to mention on this podcast, but the great news is a resource on the ME Association website is packed with so many event details and ideas of how you can get involved. You'll find all the links in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Please let me know what you think of this episode. I'm sure it'll grow and change and develop over time. You'll find me on Twitter at Gary Bird just CI and use the hashtag the ME show. Right, let's get on with the programme. And we begin with my first guest, Jennifer Breyer, an ME advocate and campaigner, a public speaker and filmmaker whose documentary Unrest is making people across the world sit up and listen to what ME can be like. From as early as I can remember, I wanted to swallow the world whole. Anything was possible. I just thought I would have more time. I don't know what I did to myself. I don't think I can get up off the couch. I feel like my brain is misfiring. Sometimes I wouldn't be able to speak. Wow. If you say too little, they can't help you. And if you say too much, they think you're a mental patient. The doctor would tell me, you're just dehydrated. Everyone gets stressed. Jennifer, welcome to the Emmy show. Uh, I I ask this question and I mean it literally. How are you today? Um, 
I am not doing too well. I, I had uh, some food poisoning last night, so um, uh, it's been it's been a rough week. It's it's so hard, and I think everyone can relate to this. But you get a little bit better, and so you decide, okay, I'm going to live. I'm going to do something kind of normal, um, and then you pay for it. So I'm I'm in the paying the pay the payback part oh. um, of my weekend. You have my sympathies, and I know that feeling only so well. Your your brain forgets to hold back and keep things in reserve because you have a moment of feeling like a fully fledged human being. And I, I have to say, I wonder on an almost daily basis how on this planet you do it because everywhere I look. You seem to be doing something at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I, I think um, I, I really have learned over the years um, how to respect my limits and um, also how to, um, you know, and, and have had the really great fortune of both having access to certain treatments and um, responding to them. Mm-hmm. And so it's a combination of, um, being, you know, having that care, but also just really, um, trying to meter my activity so I can be consistent. Um, and so I think all of those things have helped, but, um, I, you know, I also have an amazing team, um, that was working really hard, um, and has been for the last, you know, uh, two years, um, on finishing and releasing this project. So, um, it's, you know, it's something I could never do in a million years alone. Um, but I also, um, pay um, a lot um, and often for the work that I do, and you know, I, I, that part of it, I think I, people really don't don't get to see. Yeah, of course, of course, and and it's the story time and time again, isn't it? The the public face, the public mask, and and then the, the hidden side of, of certainly my life that people don't see. However, it's different with you because millions of people have seen that side of your life. I, I was in absolute floods of tears watching unrest it it was partly empathy with your experience and those people you met but it was also validation of my experience it was the first real case study that made me think I'm not going mad this thing is real and I'm, I'm guessing you've heard that story many times I have and I think the thing that has been really um sort of interesting and and remarkable is the response that patients have had to the film in terms of uh, being seen, feeling, feeling, feeling like they, their experience is reflected. Um, It's precisely the reason why I started making the film in the first place, not even necessarily for, you know, a kind of big public audience, but for myself, like I, I had was having all of these symptoms that, you know, weren't in the diagnostic criteria. And I was trying to sort of um, reconcile what I was experiencing with what doctors were telling me. And so I started to reach out to other people and um, talk to them um, in part because I needed to understand what I was going through, you know, as a new patient, as someone just discovering, um, you know, my own body as well as this world um, and its history. And, uh, and so the only difference, and I, I think a lot of patients do that um, and have to do, do that um, when they first get sick, I guess the difference is that I did it, did it on camera. Um, <laughs> So much of it. I, mean, I remember the very first patient that I interviewed is a um, an American woman named uh, Mary Schweitzer, who's also um, you know a longtime activist, and she um, has been kind of writing and advocating for people with ME for several decades. And it was both for me and Omar, who was there at the shoot, um, this incredibly validating experience because we heard in her, you know, it, it, it was a mirror a mirror to our own lives and and suddenly we felt like we weren't alone and that we weren't crazy um you know and that was back in i guess now um 2013 um and so that was that that was the experience i had as sort of mary's audience um in a sense and then to now you know four years later um be able to have transmitted that and given other people that experience is um, it's just enormous. And I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity. 
it's an extraordinary period of your life. I want to rewind a little bit to pre-unrest, if we if we measure time pre and post unrest. <laughs> Where did all this begin for you? I mean, I read you're there, this this high flying scholar doing well, life's good, and then what? Well, we were we were all high flying before. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, in in you know in comparison to our lives now. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I say that only because I think there's a tendency to sort of, um, you know, emphasize how amazing life was and it, and it was, um, but I don't, you know, I was, I was normal relative to everyone that, that, that I knew in my life. We were all young and, um, and, and working and studying. Um, and, and so it came as a total shock to me in part because I didn't know, anyone with a chronic illness or anyone who had had an autoimmune disease. And I actually didn't know that it was possible to get the sick, um, this early in life, um, after having been, you know, well, um, my entire life. And, um, I was traveling with, um, my husband Omar and, um, he got really sick, um, with a virus and, um, I, was taking care of him, um, when we were traveling and then I came back, um, and had a really high fever and I don't know, you know, I think looking back that we probably got the same thing and he recovered and I didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially it was, I had a fever that, you know, I don't know what the, Celsius is. I'm sorry, but I had a fever of 104.7. I, I think in Celsius that's called very hot. That's called that's called extremely dangerously <laughs> hot. Um, you know, and I and I and I didn't I didn't go to uh, the doctor or to the ER because I I was so I, I was almost I was sort of almost too ill to be moved. And at the same time, every, every time I'd ever had a fever in my life, I was just told to go home and drink, drink fluids and have some chicken soup. And so I sort of, um, you know, and, and the fever came down, but it was for 10 days. So it was probably the worst, you know, acute illness I'd had in my life. And as soon as the fever broke, I was extremely dizzy um, and uh, in a way that I'd never been before. And so it was absolutely sudden what happened. And then at the same time, there was this kind of gradual part where over the next 18 months, I, you know, kept getting worse and worse, but was also had periods of time of being relatively well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, where I, every time I had an infection, I would be, which I was starting to get every single month, I would be laid out in bed. Um, but then when I was well, I was just sort of living my life. And I think looking back, I had what we would now call, um, really immediately after that fever, a mild case of ME. Um, I, you know, was still able to go to school and um, do most of what I was doing before. But if I would, you know, um, there was a bike ride we used to always do um, along the Charles River in Boston which was about six miles out, six miles back, you know? And so I would notice that if we were to ride out the six miles, I'd have to call a cab because I wouldn't be able to get back. Or I'd go skiing with my family and then, you know, um, be fine for the first few hours. And suddenly my legs would turn to jelly and then I would end up back in 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 the condo, you know, on the couch for the next several days. And because I kept going to doctors and sort of saying, you know, I think something's wrong, I actually remember saying, literally weeks after the fever, I think something's wrong with my immune system. I kept being being told that I was absolutely fine. And so um, when your doctor tells you you're not sick, you have to try to find a way to explain what's going on. And I, I just sort of thought, well, maybe this is what happens after 25. You, <laughs> you start getting older and you can't do the things that you used to be able to do. And now you know that there was more to it than that. When was that moment? What was there a day when it's like, aha, this is M.E.? I think the the moment when I realized that, okay, I, I'm right. Something is fundamentally changed in my body and I am really, really sick was, um, I was at a, out at a, at a, a Chinese restaurant with some friends. And, um, when the check came, I realized that I couldn't write my own name. Like I had, I, I, I was thinking about my name and my hand wouldn't move. And I, I, as I tried to sort of figure out what was going wrong with me, I realized that I actually was having a hard time drawing, drawing full circles. I can only draw um, the, the left side of the circle. And I had numbness all on my right side and my face. Um, my hand was really clumsy. And I thought, I don't, 
don't know what's going on, but maybe something, I'm having a stroke, I, something's wrong with my brain. So I went to the emergency room and um, really after that, I started getting worse and worse over the course of a couple of weeks and started to be referred to all of these different specialists um, in Boston. And uh, that was when I was diagnosed um, by a neurologist with conversion disorder. And he told me that all of my symptoms were being caused by a distant trauma that I couldn't remember, um, which was really convenient um, because neither could he. And, uh, <laughs> the, you know, but I, I, I you know, I, I was someone who, you know, both um, Omar and I were doing, uh, in addition to our PhD programs, we're pursuing um, master's degrees in statistics. And I had, you know, taken up to that point, maybe like six semesters of, of, of different, um, you know, kind of both theoretical and applied stats classes. And so I had been thinking a lot about what science is and also about, um, you know, just sort of being enmeshed in this culture of, of, of research and, it was remarkable to me how different the practice of medicine is from the practice um, or, or sort of methods of science. And so, um, but at the same time, I thought, okay, if I really do have conversion disorder, I'm the last person who's going, you know, and it's because of something I can't recall, like I'm not, that's something that's so deep and I'm not even going to be able to access it. So. I walked home that day from his office, um, just sort of noticing the pain in my legs and trying to just see if I could catch or understand how my brain could possibly have generated these symptoms. Um, and then I walked through the door. Um, my brain and my spinal cord were burning. Um, I had the last saver that I've ever had in my life and uh, was in bed for the next four months. Um, from that walk. And I've never been the same since. I had no idea how dangerous it was to exert myself when I was that sick. Um, and I really do believe that had I not walked home that day, had I gotten diagnosed immediately, um, it's possible that I would have remained a mild case, that I never would have become bedbound or, um, uh, you know, need to use a wheelchair. You're talking in a very matter-of-fact way, in a, an evidence-based, statistical, dare I say, scientific way. From an emotional perspective, for both you and for Omar, how are you coping at that point in your life? I mean, th th this, is, this is emotionally traumatic. Oh, it was terrifying. And because the, the, the symptoms were so severe and... At that moment, in the course of a few weeks, I stopped being able to read, write, um, often lost the ability to speak, to sit up in bed, to, to you know, I, I was barely able to get to the bathroom. And um, it was a really dramatic loss of function. And because of that point, I had no diagnosis. I started to wonder if um, it was just that I had this really rare disease that no one had ever seen. And I thought that, you know, I thought it was possible I had something terminal because it, I, it was just so bad. And so I was terrified and, it, and that was really, you know, it was in that moment of terror that I first picked up my camera because I needed a way to process what I was feeling and experiencing. And, and honestly, to have someone to talk to, the camera on my iPhone in a way became became my support and a medium for expressing and interpreting what was happening. And at the same time, I would say that um, I probably have never really fully directly experienced like the full weight of this. I think even in that moment, I knew that if I were to allow myself to feel all the pain and all the grief and all the fear, it would have destroyed me physically. I was completely incapable of crying. Like, I mean, I would cry and then I would crash. <laughs> and so I was like, no crying. Like, <laughs> you need to sort of. And so, you know, I developed these sort of skills that I, I of just really trying to sort of maintain and even keel and a distance in a way. Um, and uh, and so. In some ways, I think even to this day, I, I cannot fully allow myself to feel everything that I've lost um, because that, the weight of that would 
would crush me. But knowing that is so powerful, knowing that that would crush you, crash you to avoid it is part of coping. The, the way I interpreted those moments of, of you with the camera when I was watching Unrest, I almost felt like your camera was your equivalent of standing at an open window and screaming, but, but you don't have the energy. So this, this was a substitute for that. Oh, I would say the entire film was one giant scream. There was the moment when it was clear to me that there was a real danger that I was just going to um, implode. Um, It is so hard unless you have been in the situation to, which I'm sure many people listening have been, um, to know how to like to know how to survive with a sense of yourself intact to understand how to construct in your own mind an idea of a life worth living when you lose everything that you valued about yourself about your life you know for the first 10 20 30 40 50 years and when that just pulled away from you um you know everybody copes in different ways and i think i was so um the 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 weight and the loss of that i think there was a real danger that i was really afraid that i was going to end up taking my own life and i was afraid of that because i did not believe i had the stamina to um to deal with the grief of the loss and then the daily pain um of being completely bedridden and I, I, there are many people who live that way for a very long period of time and you know are able to cope and are able to do it. And I I think in those early days, I did not trust that I was going to be one of those people who had those kinds of emotional resources to deal with it. And I think for me, it was almost like I had to do something so extreme in the opposite direction. I had to sort of take the, the, you know, if you could kind of imagine almost like a black hole of like, of that kind of pain and, 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 and despair. And I had to sort of, I had to invert it. <laughs> It was the gaslighting. It was the the complete denial and erasure of the experience on top of the pain of the experience itself that I found to be really dangerous to like my own psychological survival. And so I think I had to do the scream for myself, but also because I just couldn't, I couldn't bear the thought of living in a world where so many people were living in so much pain and to not, and to feel like nobody, nobody knew. Everything you've just described is everything I felt when I was going through my first year of this. I have a mantra of turn your weakness into your strength. And actually, that's what unrest is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's, um, I really wanted to try to end the film in a moment of ambivalence, of, of a kind of bittersweet kind of space, which is, I think the one that I live every day, which is this world is amazing. And, and yet we have, we have lost, we have been lost to the world in some fundamental way and we are still here and yet we're in this kind of limbo and we are so connected to each other. And there's so much love that I think enters into that void, into that, into that dark hole that can fill it. You know, the love that our loved ones have for us, um, the love that we have for each other. And at the same time, all of that is kind of, powerless in the face of of the uncertainty of the neglect of the lack of treatment options and yet it is what we have and so we we build something really beautiful with it and um and also just that up and down and the kind of cyclical nature of living with a chronic illness both in terms of the physical symptoms as well as the emotional experience and it's it's interesting because i think you know people who are who are well who are able-bodied sort of think of the of the ending as, as as sort of kind of grim and then people who live with us every day think of it as you know maybe too optimistic and it's been interesting <laughs> to see those different reactions depending on what your lived experience is but there was a young woman who got up and said you know are you trying to say that everything happens for a reason and is good and I said to her you know absolutely not I mean this is the most meaningless nihilistic, horrible, random, pointless experience. <laughs> like there's no, there's nothing inherently redeeming in the experience of living with ME. Um, and there is no reason 
that this happened to me um, or to you or to any of us. But I do think we all have a choice to um, take what is meaningless and 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 empty and horrible and to imbue it with meaning, to transform it and create a kind of alchemy, whatever that might be, right? So your alchemy is is this show and is all of the public outreach you've been doing. For me, it was my film. For you know um, someone else, it you know it's it's starting a support group for. Um, uh, you know, for parents um, with ME, or it's, you know, doing a fundraiser, or it's, you know, creating really beautiful art and music, or, um, you know, all of the activism that's been happening around the the PACE trial, um, and the incredible citizen journalism and science. And so I think, I think there's a, you know, and even just a simple support that we offer one, one another, you know, in forums, um, on social media. And it's not to say that that's easier, that, everyone has the same resources to do that emotional, social, financial. Um, there is so much that is unfair and unequal, even within our own community. But I do think we all, you know, at least for me, I think reclaiming a piece of agency in all of this was so important to my own survival. And I, I think there is a way that even in the swirl of so much that we can't change, we can, we can find something in there that we can hold on to what do you see or hope the legacy of unrest is or will be (laughs) wow you know it's funny i've never thought of that um really no i think about it a lot i i I really do I, i i put that project if that's the right phrase on a pedestal and and I just I see that the shoots that come out of it in terms of connecting people, of raising awareness, of disrupting the status quo, of shining a light in dark corners. But you've not thought of the legacy of that. No, I, I haven't. I'm I think I'm too busy. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I don't mean to diminish it at all, because I, I know that for a lot of people, it has been a tool, a, a space, a way to to feel seen and to connect to other people and to convey their experience to their families. And it's, you know, it's been a community organizing tool as mm-hmm. well. And that was very explicitly the goal of our campaign and has also been the natural outcome of so many people using it and bringing, you know, in their own communities and using it as a way to bring people together. And, um, and so I'm, I, I am incredibly uh, proud of that and heartened by it. You know, even last fall as we were releasing the film, there are so many people who are kind of saying, you know, oh, look, it's so amazing what you've done. And I think I, I couldn't feel that. And I don't know that I ever will, because at the same time that it is so wonderful that I think we've kind of we're starting to cross a, 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 a you know, a threshold. It's not the only one, but I do think that with the film um, and with the work of people like Charles Shepard and like David Tuller and like Tom Kinland um, and like Ron Davis and, you know, like Julia Newton and, you know, on and on and on. Like mm-hmm. there's so many people doing so much amazing work in, in activism and in science and, and the community is coalescing and feels so much bigger and more dynamic than it was five years ago when I first joined. And I think, I think there's a lot that is starting to come together and synergize. And I'm so, and so I do feel like we're starting to reach a place where we can say, okay, we still have so much farther to go, but we've also crossed a line that um, I think, and I hope we can't slide back from, but the reality is, is that I always know that we can because we've been here before and there have been other moments of hope and possibility where that didn't, come to fruition. And so I live with that every day. And I live with the, the the women that I met who drove all the way from Tennessee to come to the premiere, the theatrical premiere of Unrest in New York, <laughs> who I talked to and hugged and held and connected with for, you know, 15 minutes, um, and who only a few weeks later took her own life. I guess I live with the sense every day of just how much more there is to do and how much many more people there are to reach. And I know that that's an unfolding process, but I don't think we have the time. Like we can't wait. Yeah. 
because waiting waiting is 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 losing more life waiting is losing our own lives and so i'm just every day trying to keep figuring out okay what more can i do what can i do next that that really comes across as i follow your your social media feed in in your tweets for example your your impatience uh, occasionally your intolerance of people saying it can wait till tomorrow uh, you want to move on and and keep moving on uh, talking of moving on uh, with your emmy action hat on and and millions missing we are approaching a day when actually increasing visibility of this often hidden Emmy world is going to be on the horizon. It is so incredible. I, um, so we, you know, we've been doing these millions missing days of action. Um, this is now kind of third round and we went, you know, the first time it was 12 cities and then it was, um, I think 20, 24, 20 something. And now there's over 90 cities where people are gathering together to take action and, um, you know, and in places where we have never really been connected before. So, uh, you know, dozens of cities across um, America, UK, Europe, but also, you know, in Mexico and in Chile and in Tokyo. Um, and, uh, you know, there's now an Emmy action Pakistan. And so the legacy of unrest is that it, you know, more people were able to understand what condition they had to get diagnosed and to know that they weren't alone and to connect to others. Um, and so, you know, and to build and grow this community. I, I just, I have this idea of like, we are this community, but we're so, we're so small relative to the number of people who are affected by this condition. And so we all need to be like, you know, scouts essentially who are going out and trying to find the people who are lost um, and who are unconnected and who are undiagnosed or are diagnosed but don't know that that we're here and we need to go out and bring them in and and show them you know you you can you can find friendship you can find support you can find care you can learn about your illness you you um um and this is really hard but you don't have to grieve alone you can grieve in a community um and with others and and you you can find a way toward a new life um and because that that was my experience of the community it was it was it was you know i saw because i saw people who had been sick for for 10 years 20 years who were still living in really difficult ways and yet had found a way to survive um, it gave me hope that I could find my own way. And I, and I really want other people to have that chance. Um, and, uh, but we have, so, so I, I want us to kind of go out and reach all those folks. And I think with millions missing, it's a, it is an opportunity because it's a chance to come together in our, in our local communities, in our towns and our cities and meet other people in some cases, new people, um, and, um, and come together and, and support each other. And I think, I think if, if we do only that, that is both good unto itself and something that will only continue to build and grow and gather steam. And I also think it is a moment, you know, for, you know, relative to the public, to the press, um, to our government officials to say, you know, we are here and um, we demand to be seen and demand to, to, to be taken seriously um, because we need the research funding and we need the medical education and care. Um, and so I don't think this will be the last time we'll do this. I think we need to keep doing it, but it's going, I hope, to keep, keep growing in size and gathering momentum until it becomes a force that, you know, can't, can't be ignored. It's got to. It's got to grow and grow. The, the success of Millions Missing will be the year when it's not needed anymore. That's surely the ambition, that there is no need for its existence. Where, where are we? You're, you're far more plumbed into education, research, the financing, the politics of this. How hopeful are you at this stage in the history of, of this disease uh, that, that we're making any kind of progress? I'm really hopeful on the kind of science and medical side. And I say that because I realize that it's actually not that hard to change people's minds and get them interested and engaged. And it's because, you know, even though there has been this very strong opposition historically to or rather a kind of strong um, constituency 
that has bedded very hard on a psychological paradigm um, of this disease and has been resistant to update that paradigm in light of evidence. <laughs> that is a, a that is a, 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 a small number of people, and they've held disproportionate power. But a part of the reason they've held that power is because there are so you know there are vastly greater numbers of, of people, of, of, of clinicians, of scientists, who simply don't know, who don't have an opinion one way or another and are not really engaged. And, you know, I did an incredible screening um, of unrest at Harvard Medical School a few a few weeks ago, and we had a half-hour Q&A that turned into an hour, <laughs> an hour and 20 minutes, and the, and the students and the residents and the faculty, and there was so much um, interest and engagement and 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 a desire to to do more and to learn more i think bringing in new clinicians and bringing in new scientists is totally possible when you do the outreach when you have that conversation and then you give people tools it 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 changes the way that, that they think about this absolutely the real challenge is scaling that right it's very hard for any charity or our campaign or you know to to kind of reach thousands and thousands of clinicians and scientists. And that's why we need the help of the government because they are another kind of arm of disseminating the information. And so it's because of that, that I think the solution needs to be in part political and because the funding allocation decisions, especially in the U S are also political. And so I, I do think there's a kind of like hearts and minds outreach part of it that we're going to keep doing um, here in the U S we also really want to do it in the UK and to, to, you know, accredit unrest for continued medical education. Um, and we're, we're ramping up to do a sort of slate of like screenings at 20 medical schools across the U S and we really want to do the same thing in the UK as well um, next year. And so I do think that that's going to be, an important part of the work, um, but uh, getting the levers of government to take this on as an important crisis, like HIV/AIDS was, like you know, uh, epidemic crises like Zika, hmm. or you know, um, like, like the government and the public health systems can mobilize to confront crises. I think, but they have there has to be a level of public will and investment, and um, and that really, I think, only comes from pressure and engagement. And we don't yet have the power to do that. Um, we don't yet have the power to force our governments to really reckon with this. And we won't, I believe, until we build and, and deepen and grow and grow the movement. And there will be a moment that will come and it will feel like it happened overnight and to the rest of the world, that's what it'll look like. But it will be the outcome of, of, you know, I think 10 years of really, 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 really hard, relentless um, advocacy. How do you keep going? I, I sit here in awe listening to this and, and just thinking for, for for somebody who's who's having the best of days and the best of health, this is an incredible feat. But here you are, and I know you credit a team around you, and I know the network is growing all the time, but but how do you keep going? I don't really feel like I have a choice. In in, in a, a couple of days ago on Twitter, um, I was sort of wrestling with this emotionally because I, you know, like, I would love nothing more than to drop all of this, walk away, and go make movies. Like, that's what I would love to be doing. Um <laughs> I still hope and believe I will find a way to do that, but I also, I can't unsee what I've seen. I can't unknow what I know. And I, I feel an incredible responsibility to, um, to all of us to, to do what I can to keep fighting. And it's really just because I don't think I can live in the world the way that it is and not be working on changing it. Um, and so, so I, I don't feel like I have a choice. But in terms of how I do it, you know, it's interesting because I, I was actually much less productive before I got ME, and I and and it was you know I, I was also young and um, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life and uh, and you know so in place of not knowing, I was just doing a million things um, <laughs> and uh, and didn't really choose um, because I didn't have to. Getting this condition, you know, radically drastically narrowed my life and many days I only had sometimes I had a few hours 
um, many days I only had 10 minutes of time a day to do anything, you know, um, and I really just let go of the expectation that on any given day I would know how much time I had to do or work or give. I let go of any expectations about how long it would take to get where I was going. Um, I focused only on what I could control, which was taking that little bit of space that I had every day, knowing where I wanted to get to, right? In this case, the completion of the film. And just every day I would take, you know, 80% of what I had and I would, I would just, I would just work on unrest. And I knew that even if it took me, you know, two years or 10 years, eventually I would get there. And, you know, I've talked about it before as becoming acquainted with the power of geological time. So, you know, a, a single drop of water, um, you know, dripping on a rock, given enough time can create canyons. Hmm. And I decided that I was going to be that water on that rock. And so that's just what it is every day. I am that water on that rock and I keep making a little bit of progress every day. And, and I, I am convinced and I know that we will get there. We will absolutely get there to a world where everyone is diagnosed and everyone has access to real treatment options and eventually everybody can be can and will be cured. I absolutely believe that. I just don't know how long it's going to take. Um, but I do know that if I work every day, it'll happen faster. And so that's why I do it. And I don't worry about the outcome. I just know that it will happen. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on the ME show today. I hope we'll be having another another of these conversations in the not too distant future. And I, I wish you only continued success. Thank you. This was wonderful. It's nice to actually have a chance to really talk to you, Gary. And I wish you best of luck with the show. It's it's a really wonderful, wonderful thing. Well, I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. I've I've only seen short interviews or talks or listened to short interviews with Jennifer on TV, on radio, online. So to get to spend quality time talking to her was a real privilege. If you want to know more about Jennifer's work, if you want to know more about unrest, if you want to know more about the Millions Missing Action Day events, and I have to say, there are so many across the UK and around the world, you'll find all the links on the show notes that come with this podcast. Next on the ME show, what happens when you have ME, but you want to bring a creative idea to life... And you spread the word online that you're reworking a classic song and you'd like others with Emmy to join you. Robert Saunders takes up the story. There was no grand plan, really. Um, I didn't come up with the idea of recording it in this way uh, in the beginning. It's It was just that um, I played quite a bit of Bob Dylan, playing gentle fingerstyle guitars one of the few physical activities that I've been able to to manage in recent years. And Blown Him in the Wind was, was one of the songs that, that I've played for a while. I worked out my own fingerstyle arrangement for it. And then I was, I can't think when, maybe a couple of years ago, I was, I was playing it, singing it, um, just, just on my own in my bedroom. And it just occurred to me how relevant the lyrics were to me, my situation and the struggles faced by people with ME around the world. And so I th- I thought, you know, whether I might be able to do anything with it, whether I could uh, record a cover that, that could be used for ME awareness or something. And then it occurred to me to try to write my own lyrics that were specifically about ME and the issues which have affected me personally. So I did that, and, and I recorded it, and I thought about uploading it uh, to YouTube to see if it would gain any interest. But I, I hadn't got round to it, and it had just been sitting on my iPad for a while without me taking it any further. And then towards the end of last year, I came up with the idea of recording it with other people from different countries, people I'd been in touch with, people on social media and forums who had ME, 
So I put a message out to see if anyone had any interest in collaborating and singing in a in a chorus. And I had a, a lot of positive responses. I can't remember how many initially, but at least a dozen people contacted me in the first instance and and said they'd be interested. So I sent out my recording that I'd done on my own to them and they were all very positive about it and some of them knew other people in similar situations and, and forwarded it on. So in the end we had we had over 30 people that wrote to me saying they'd like to be part of it. Um, and sadly, quite a few of those in the end weren't, weren't well enough to be able to do it. Um, but we had 18 people in the end. Um, so they listened to my MP3 that, that I'd sent and then just recorded themselves over the top, sent me a file of them singing. Some people sang the whole thing and some people sang just the choruses. Some people did it in unison. Some people in the, in the same um, pitch as me. Some people um, in an octave higher. Uh, Kaylee sent me her wonderful recording in harmony all the way through. Now, originally I wasn't going to use harmony. It was just all going to be unison, but I was so blown away by the quality of her voice um, that I decided to use her singing the verses with me and then to use everybody else um, coming in for the chorus. That's an incredible story, isn't it? Well, this is the result. A powerful, haunting new version of Blowing in the Wind.
gives me goosebumps listening to that every single time. And Robert tells me the song is being played at many of this coming Saturday's Millions Missing events. You'll find the link to the song and the simple yet powerful video that goes with it in the show notes to this program. And that is it for episode one. If you want to know more about anything we've spoken about today on the ME show, just head to emmyassociation.org.uk forward slash podcast. You'll find all the links and notes you need there. That's emmyassociation.org.uk slash podcast. I'm also really keen to hear from you. All feedback is welcome. Please be kind. Please be gentle. You'll find me on Twitter at Gary Burgess CI, and you can use the hashtag The ME Show. In the next episode, world-renowned ME medic Dr. Charles Shepard on understanding ME, on finding its cause, and on working to to find a cure. I am sure that will be a fascinating listen. And a reminder, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes to boost our rankings. It makes us more visible to others. And you'll find all the notes and links about things we've spoken about today at emmyassociation.org.uk slash podcast. For now, though, I'm Gary Burgess and that's The Emmy Show. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time.